Hi there and welcome to A Voice Box, your fabulous weekly guide to all things singing and vocal music related. I'm Chloe Veltman, thanks for joining me tonight. People who like to sing often devote lots of time, money and attention to learning how to do it properly. We take voice lessons, practice for hours and make expensive visits to voice therapists and laryngologists when things go wrong. But few of us bother to pay any attention at all to the way we speak. This seems pretty strange when you consider the fact that most of us use our speaking voices far more often than our singing voices. And frankly, while it's possible to go through life with a singing voice that isn't so great, no one has to hear you sing if you don't want them to. It's much harder to get along in the world if your speaking voice sounds like a choking bullfrog's. So tonight on Voicebox, we're going to devote our energies to exploring the intricate relationship between singing and speaking. We have a wonderful pair of knowledgeable guests to chat about this subject with us. In the studio, um, Sarah Schneider, a speech-language pathologist at the UCSF Voice and Swallowing Centre and a member of the American Speech-Language Hearing Association, or ASHA. Hello, Sarah. Thanks for joining me once again. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for having me. And joining us on the phone from Los Angeles is Joanna Kasdan. Joanna is an ASHA affiliate voice teacher and a medical speech pathologist at Cedars-Sinai Medical Centre, where she specialises in voice rehabilitation for artists. Hi, Joanna. Thanks for being on the end of the line. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for uh, letting me come in and talk again. I should also mention that both Joanna and Sarah are singers themselves, with experience in performing across several different musical genres, from choral singing to musical theatre. Sarah and Joanna, in a recent exchange, you both talked about singing and speaking as being like two branches of the same tree. How closely are they related? Well, um, this is one easy way that I use to sort of describe the voice, the speaking and the singing voice. Two branches of the same tree that use the same musculature, same breath, um, same vocal folds. Although some people may think there are more than two, there are only two vocal folds and we use them for speaking and singing. I was thinking of an analogy earlier with um, the hand, where we write by hand. Someone might draw and paint, and they might use a computer keyboard. They're using the same muscles, but with different kinds of strokes, different timing, Mm -hmm. kind of a different recipe of use. Okay, so it's basically whether we're speaking or singing, we're more or less working with the same kinds of muscles. It's just a different way of working with those muscles mm-hmm. then. So um, what can you tell us a bit more about what's happening on, a, on the muscular level when we speak versus when we sing? When we speak, generally things are moving in a smaller range with less force but more speed. Um, singing takes obviously a much louder range, a wider pitch range, the phrases are longer. So the actual muscle effort, especially in terms of the breath, is greater and the the cords have to be more flexible. But other than for ornaments in singing, which of course have great cultural variety and virtuosity, other than that, the changes generally are slower in singing, I think. Speech goes very, very quickly and our vocal cords are constantly going on and off to shape consonants as well as tones and vowels. So there's quite a difference in speed to correspond to the difference in forcefulness. 
It's often said that speech is a left brain activity and singing is a right brain activity. Is this actually true or a lot of nonsense? Well, this is partly true and partly not. There was quite a bit of research done on this in the 70s. The left hemisphere of the brain handles timing and analysis, and the right hemisphere is more spatial, more melodic, more personal, more emotional. But it turns out that both language and music use both of those. Um, Language has a tone of voice. It has an emotion. We hear that in, in the speech of the people that we know. And music has quite a lot of analytical form and um, timing and tempo and rhythm involved. So they both, they both use both, but again, probably in somewhat different proportions. Again, if singing goes a little more slowly, then the timing isn't as quite important as it is in speech, and so the right hemisphere emotional elements may seem to be more pronounced. But, but both parts of the brain are are working both to produce and to experience both of them. Well, in addition to the brain, of course, the body is working uh, hard in particular with singing because of the amount of effort that it takes to sing. But is it actually more difficult to sing than speak? Hmm. I mean, I would say it it depends on your probably level of training, what genre of music you're singing, um, that that sort of thing. Um, You know, as a in a classical singer, they require a lot more vocal control. So some people may consider that to be more taxing. I think it definitely requires more training than other genres of music that maybe like without making too broad of a generalization, many country singers don't have much training, but is it as taxing? I don't know, you know. I, I, think it, I think it probably is, and their training comes from, from listening and copying. Hmm. Um, it may not be formal training, right. but they're, yes. they're certainly working There's practice. diligently yeah. mm-hmm. at, at what they're trying to do and, and the way that they choose to sound. But what about on the speaking side of things? I mean, you know, obviously most of us are able just to open our mouths and speak, but I mean, there are instances, I think, in all our lives where it's very difficult to speak one way or another. And certainly if you're an actor having to get on stage every at, or a politician, you know, mm-hmm. and having to speak a lot, I mean, that Again, must... those, are, those are more formal mm. um, settings for speech. Where, where higher levels of, of accuracy and power and nuance and emotional variety and pitch and so on. It's what we call heightened or enhanced speech production. And that certainly does take training and practice. So on an everyday level, with children, for example, where, where before any of us have sort of, at the young age, before we've formulated ideas about having to focus our efforts and learn to sing or learn to speak for particular jobs or activities. Would you say at the basic level that singing and speaking are very much akin and, and on a par in terms of their ease or difficulty and, and similar? I would say so. Yeah. I think little children sing to themselves and, and pick up. Their, their pitch may not be accurate, <laughs> um, but sometimes it is if they have a good ear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sometimes feel that because there's so much recorded music now, there's much less spontaneous singing in people's homes and early lives, and so that shuts down. But it doesn't have to. If kids are are exposed to live music and encouraged to sing, that's going to develop right along with their speech. 
Well, let's listen now to a couple of examples of song where the connection between speaking and singing seems, at least to my ear, to come across very well. First of all, we'll hear from Melissa Charnick, who's a young rap artist from Milwaukee. She is one of the most musical people to have recently emerged from the hip-hop scene, I think. The track we'll play is from Melissa's recently released album, Raspberry Jesus, and it's called Been This Way. And then we'll hear an example from Arnold Schoenberg's musical melodrama, Pierre Lunaire, composed in 1912. In the extract, we'll hear singer Aya Cilia with Robert Kraft and the 20th Century Classics Ensemble performing Night, a section from part two of the landmark atonal work. I'm in the studio and all I do is write It's my favorite time of day and all I do is write So when you see me out at night you know what I'm thinking That I wish I was at home right now writing And everyone's a critic, they got something to say I know they mean well, it's just one of those days That I sit and contemplate, not making no more, no more music I don't know if I can do this no more And he says that I'm tripping and I know that I am And he says that I'm gifted and I know that I am I don't doubt myself with the mic in my hand But this is like in my eyes that I forget who I am on my all to my God, but that would be a lie. My God took my brother from me when I was only 18 and he was only 21. And they say the good die young. And If you've just joined us, welcome. I'm Chloe Veltman and you're tuned in to Voicebox. On tonight's show, I'm chatting with voice speech pathologists Sarah Schneider and Joanna Kasdan about the fascinating intersection between speaking and singing. We just heard two examples that show how closely the two modes of communication are related. The first track was Been This Way from hip-hop artist Melissa Charnick's recently released album Raspberry Jesus. And then we heard Anya Cilia with Robert Kraft and the 20th Century Classics Ensemble perform Night, a section from part two of Arnold Schoenberg's Pierrot Lunaire, composed in 1912. Sarah and Joanna, what do each of the tracks we just listened to tell us about the closeness of the relationship between speaking and singing? It's clear that these creative artists, both as composers and performers, um, are interested in the overlap and the boundaries between singing and speech. So it's, it, they at least show that, that, uh, that this question has been around for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Sarah, anything you want to add? I think um, people don't often think of sort of the speaking as being um, something that can be musical. Mm-hmm. And it's demonstrated here that that speaking component can be musical. Right. It's right on the edge there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are certainly things about uh, both of those pieces we just heard where you feel like even though it's speaking, it's singing or it's singing, yeah. it's speaking. And it kind of crosses over that terrain. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. How can rap artists and, and classical singers performing works th- that require the use of speech-like techniques, like Sprechgesang, which is what we heard in Pierrot Lunaire, how can they navigate this terrain between speech and singing in a healthy way? Is there any special techniques or advice you would offer? 
from my perspective, I would say it, if your speaking voice is healthy and your singing voice is healthy, you want to make them feel the same. You know, there's no um, sort of magic bullet. It's really using the exact same techniques with breathing and, and re- feelings of resonance and ease and using energy in your body and all mm-hmm. of that in the whether it's spoken or sung. All right. And the muscles are going to be working in exactly the same way. But if you're, for example, doing a you're, you're in a musical scenario, but essentially you're not you're, you're creating spoken text rather than than mm-hmm. singing. I mean, the, are you going to have to use I, your think about your muscles in a different way or not? The, the fundamental frequency, the actual sound produced by the vocal cords when we speak is not as pure a tone. It's what would be called a narrow band of frequencies rather than a single mm-hmm. pitch. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing an art form that's in between, then you're, you're really zeroing in on that fine control of exactly how narrow a band of frequency you're going to use. If it's a little wider, it sounds to people more like speech. If it's narrower and more pure, then it's going to sound more like singing. And that's mm-hmm. certainly what, uh, what Melissa Charnick was doing in her rap, mm-hmm. was producing more of a sung tone mm-hmm. where the pitch was very, very evident. Well, what are some of the main problems you deal with as therapists when it comes to speaking versus singing issues? Do you find the same issues come up for both speaking voices and singing voices, or are you mostly dealing with different issues, depending on whether someone's approaching you with a speech or singing problem? Hmm. That's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Joanna. I really tailor things to the individual, and for someone, their speech problem might be based on the same kind of breath thing that I would work on often with singers, and a singer might have the same difficulty with with sort of resonance shape that that I would work on more with a, with a speaker, but. I, I find that the differences are much more related to age and medical condition and personality and whether the person's very protective in their body or whether they're used to exploring a lot of different things. That Those make more of a difference than whether it's a singer or a speech problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know... Um it it depends on it it really depends on the person and tailoring it to what you hear in their speaking or their singing and what what where their primary complaint is and then they might have one complaint and you might hear something different or they may say i'm missing this note in my upper range but you hear them kind of talking in a you know r- rough raspy voice and so do they interact and i think you know so it's definitely very patient geared can you tell a lot about someone's singing voice by listening to their speaking voice? Uh, not always. <laughs> Joanna, what do you think? I think if, if, if there's a really overt problem, if they've, if they've got a huge lesion or, yeah. or a bad cold or something, it's going to affect everything across yes. the board. But I'm thinking of a master class I oh. went to a year or two ago with um, a professional countertenor who talks like a bass and sings like a mezzo. <laughs> <laughs> and you wouldn't know from hearing yeah, him talk that right. he sings like a mezzo. Uh-huh. And there was another woman that I heard um, a few years back, and we were doing a sort of education for a bunch of um, opera students. Um, and this woman, her, I heard her sing, and then I heard her talk, and she was a mezzo, but her speaking, and clear as a bell, 
did not sound strange. I mean, re- beautiful voice. And she, I heard her speak and she was like, <laughs> I mean, I was floored. And somebody said, we've been warned not to touch her speaking voice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, well, obviously the the singing, uh, she's hitting the money she, notes. Yeah, so. and she had, she had no complaints and no problems. Okay. So it was interesting. Very strange. And, and it, it also is an example of how the speaking voice is much more everyday. You take it for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, in, that, in that sense, it's much harder to approach someone to change it. And, and often, yeah, yeah. And, and people, I think, find their speaking voices so wrapped up in their personality and like, this is this is me. If I sound different, am I, it, it's not going to be me anymore. Of course, the sound that we think we hear in our heads when we speak and mm-hmm. sing is not the same as the way other people hear us, mm-hmm. which is a whole other layer of, of inquiry, yes. right? Right. I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England and the coat of fights historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I am very well acquainted too with matters mathematical. I understand equations both the simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem, I am teeming with a lot of news. Ooh. Ah, with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. I am very good at integral and differential calculus. I know the scientific names of beings and in calculus. In short, in metals, You're listening to Voice Box. I'm Chloe Veltman. Tonight's guests, Joanna Kasdan, who's joining me on the phone from Los Angeles, and Sarah Schneider, who's right here in the studio, are voice therapists. We're delving into the relationship between singing and speaking. So I hear it's quite common for a singer to go to a voice therapist to solve some problem he or she has with a singing voice, only to be given a bunch of speaking exercises to work on. What's all that about? Hmm. <laughs> so um, if it depends what I think what is happening with the person's voice, where their complaints are. But often if there is... Um, tension in the larynx and the base of tongue in if there's discoordination with breathing and voice production often that can be seen in the speaking and the singing and if you listen to the singing and there are complaints in the singing voice but you don't particularly see a lot of um, technical issues that you can work on the speaking voice may be contributing to something like fatigue or a little bit of of tightness so why do you recommend speech oriented training for singers I I actually get pretty pretty vehement about this. Mm-hmm. Um, not not as an as an alternative to singing training, but in addition to yeah. theater training and speech oriented training, just has a really different lineage. It it comes from kinds of training that are very experiential in the breath and the body, less formalized I think than classical singing, which hasn't in many ways changed since the mm-hmm. 18th since century. <laughs> um, and I also find that, that by and large, the people who are now teaching voice for actors are better trained as teachers mm. huh. than, than the average singing teacher who may be an excellent singer but not have had much training in actually how to teach. That's a very, very broad generalization, and I'm sure leaves lots of people out. People who study in the theater lineage have a, have a much deeper connection between the breath and the meaning of what they're saying and the words, and that it, it really deepens and enhances their, their singing ability. Mm. 
as well as protecting their speaking voice. Do you think they have a better understanding of sort of the physiology of voice production and then some singing teachers do, or is that well? Not I think the part conceptual understanding is less important uh-huh. than the depth of experience and really taking the time to go into the body and which abdominal muscle you're using and using using different body positions and and uh, some of those things are now coming into singing pedagogy, mm-hmm. but it's taken a longer time to get there. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that singers can learn from actors then. Yeah, absolutely. And vice versa. And vice versa. Okay. Let's check out an example now of a choir practicing a song that requires strong speaking skills. Here's the Geographical Fugue, written in 1930 by Ernst Toch, performed by the Turtle Creek Chorale, a Dallas, Texas-based 225-voice men's chorus. In the recording, the group is led by Timothy Seelig, who has since moved to the Bay Area to head up the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. Big Mississippi and the town on the Lulu and the Lake Titicaca. The Popocatepetl is not in Canada, rather in Mexico, Mexico, Mexico. Trinidad! And the big Mississippi and the town on the Lulu and the Lake Titicaca. The Popocatepetl is not in Canada, rather in Mexico, Mexico, Mexico. Trinidad! And the big Mississippi and the town on the Lulu and the Lake Titicaca. Ernst Toch's Geographical Fugue, a famous spoken choral work from 1930. The track we heard is performed by the Turtle Creek Chorale under the direction of Timothy Seelig. You're listening to Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman. This evening, I'm exploring the deep relationship between singing and speaking. My guests are Joanna Kasdan, who's joining me on the phone from Los Angeles, and Sarah Schneider, who's here in the studio with me. Joanna and Sarah are voice speech pathologists. Joanna, you're also a voice teacher. How would you go about preparing a chorus to sing a work like the Geographical Fugue, one with no actual singing, compared to a regular sung piece? Well, it's real important not to push too loud or speak in too low a range, just because that would be fatiguing for the for the singing later in the program. Um, I remember working on this piece in uh, in my high school choir, and everybody who's ever who's ever worked on it remembers it because of the rhythmic precision and the articulatory precision that's involved. So I think choir directors probably use it as a way of of developing those skills because there's no melody to it, but there's threes against fours against twos against, you know, complex fugue arrangements, and it really sharpens up, I would say, left hemisphere skills and to the back. <laughs> uh-huh. um, do you think courses as a whole pay enough attention to their members' speaking abilities? In fact, do they really pay attention to their members' singing abilities as much as they should? I I'd say probably not, Sarah. Do you want to talk it, on that? Yeah, that, I would say that's my experience. Um, by the when people end up in our office, it's generally in relation to having not paid attention to those things. And I think it's both because if it's a young children's chorus or an adult choir, you know, they, they're often not listening to the singer independently singing. And the sing the speaking is just t- sort of taken for granted. Hmm, that's yeah. interesting. The conductors tend to be trained more as conductors rather than as voice teachers. Yeah. Oh, I see. Conductors are, or mu- some 
musician, organist. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think in the terrain of children's choirs, it seems like there's a greater drive these days to have real pedagogues in place as well as good conductors. But certainly in the world of adult choruses, that doesn't seem to be so much the case. Mm -hmm. Well, what I'd like to think about now is the tricky question of whether it's possible to sing well if you can't speak well. Maybe we should start by defining some terms here. So, um, Sarah and Joanna, how would you define singing well and speaking well? What does it mean to sing well and to speak well? There's such a range of what is considered to be normal for speaking voice quality and singing voice quality that I don't know that we can always base it on quality. It's more based on does does the person themselves have complaints do they feel fatigued do they does the quality of their voice interfere with what they're trying to achieve do they experience voice loss um is their voice unreliable so i think from you know the sort of medical perspective of what's healthy maybe that would be no lesions or um the most maximizing the mechanism, but I think there is a much wider range of normal, and we have to take that into consideration and not just expect clear, ringing voices as normal. Jana, is there anything you want to add to that? Well, at the when I first met with a patient for an assessment, um, I come around to a final question, which is to ask them to prioritize how their voice sounds, how it feels inside, and how well it endures or what's their what's their stamina and to find out which of those are their main priority and that's usually very useful useful for me then in planning um, how I'm going to approach working with them in the limited time that we have but all of those elements become important at some point in how well one can speak not only in the moment but over time um, and also whether it feels comfortable inside Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like it's pretty much a relative thing. Very individualized, depends on the patient, but uh, it's very general then. It's very hard to define what makes a good singing voice, what makes a bad singing voice, what makes a good speaking voice, what makes a bad speaking voice. And yet, you know, in our culture, people hold up certain standards, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luciano Pavarotti has a good singing voice and uh, and someone might uh, argue that there are certain singers who don't sing well at all. I mean, it's highly subjective. Same thing with speaking. I mean, we look at the the great Shakespearean actors, for example, and say, what a fantastic speaking voice he or she has. And then you might listen to a, a valley girl, <laughs> for example, and, and make fun of the fact that that her in, vocal intonations go up at the end of each sentence. I mean, that, and that, that to many people is speaking badly. But again, it's, it's highly subjective. So it's, it's very cultural as mm-hmm. well. Um, if there were a politician now who spoke... Um, the way that FDR or um, a Shakespearean actor spoke, um, they'd get laughed off the stage. They'd be out of here. <laughs> they're, they're expected to be much more colloquial. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess I find this subjectivity sort of confusing because there clearly are sort of rigorous medical standards by which you can gauge if there's a problem or not in the speaking or the singing voice. So I thought it might be interesting to play um, examples right now uh, of different singers, popular singers, first of all singing and then speaking so we can hear a difference between the qualities in their voice and maybe we can talk a little bit about the differences and what that might mean or signify, if anything. So first of all, I'm going to play an excerpt of a song by Beyonce. The song is 
if I were a boy. And then we'll hear a snippet from a recent TV interview of the pop star. She gave this interview with the British chat show host Piers Morgan. And they're talking about her appearance at the Glastonbury Music Festival in England. If I were a boy Even just for a day I'd roll out of bed in the morning And throw on what I wanted and go Drink beer with the guys And chase after girls I kick it with who I wanted And I never get confronted for it you were the first ever woman to headline at Glastonbury, an amazing achievement. Yes. What was it like for you last night? Well, you know, I'm still walking on the clouds. I'm still kind of shocked. I can't believe what happened to me happened yesterday. And I think it's because I've seen Glastonbury in photographs and I've seen it, you know, when I've traveled here and on television and, and only amazing rock stars perform and it's just the coolest festival and I was able to see my husband perform there a couple years ago and it was one of the most exciting nights um, he had a bit of controversy and, and he came out and performed you're tuned into Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. On tonight's show, we're exploring the close link between singing and speaking with speech pathologists Joanna Kasdan and Sarah Schneider. We're looking right now at the question of whether it's possible to sing well if you can't speak well, and bearing in mind that these, uh, this idea of speaking and singing well is a very subjective term. Now, from listening to the two snippets we just heard featuring the American R&B star Beyonce singing mellifluously and then speaking in kind of a raspy voice, it seems that it might be possible for some people to manage top-of-the-line singing even if their speaking sounds the worse for wear. What do you feel, Joanna and Sarah, about the discrepancy in quality between Beyoncé's singing voice and her speaking voice? Well, I think she's probably entitled to a morning after <laughs> like any other singer who's performed. Although, although I'm sure Sarah will testify to the fact that she's, that's her normal speaking voice, right? Well, in the recent interviews that I've heard of her, heard her, I, I mean, I was like, I was said, wow, she sounds so raspy. And I don't remember her sounding that way in the past listening to her voice, but recently I definitely huh. noticed it's more raspy. Well, we also don't know how much of her recorded sound and musical sound is being processed. Right, that's true, for sure. It makes, I mean, I, I heard her sing live. Um, I can't remember the name of one of her new songs and her voice sounded clear. Uh, her range sounded, was good. Um, I mean, I think if I hear somebody's voice like that, I want to see what's happening on their vocal folds and I want to sort of know what's going on. It, but again, like we were saying of, the, of this whole subjective thing, if she's not having vocal complaints, then it's not so much of an issue. Sometimes these complaints will appear in someone's speaking voice, but they don't mind it mm -hmm. until it gets worse and starts to affect their singing voice, and then they'll come in for some treatment. Mm -hmm. Okay.
Yes. Well, let's move on now to another example of someone who has a famously raspy singing voice, Tom Waits. Of course, in this case, the performer's singing voice matches the quality of his speaking voice. Let's listen to two examples to illustrate what I mean. First, we'll hear Mr. Waits performing his song, You're Innocent When You Dream. And then we'll hear part of a TV interview he gave on the David Letterman show in 2002. He's talking about his experience of going on a field trip to a music store with a bunch of kids and then some. field trips now uh i well i drive on field trips i uh, i don't know the children seem to like me as a driver i uh, well that's that's important that's key i have a lot of room in the car and uh i take the turns really fast and, uh, scream and, they find that entertaining they love that the radio's on full blast uh -huh. and what kind of places do you go on your field trips well you know the most interesting one was was that uh we took all these kids now I'm talking about 30 kids to a music store and i figured well okay i'll drive on that and then i we got there and i and i'm kind of standing over by the pianos and i'm thinking well i'm i'm, I'm gonna get recognized any minute sure. now. <laughs> And then I decided to move over by the percussion uh -huh. and uh, found an interesting lighting situation. <laughs> You're ready to go. I'm ready. Ready for, aren't you that guy? <laughs> Nothing. Really? I went over by the guitars and I waited. Nothing. I was a little let down. Yeah, I would think so. A week later, they asked me to drive on another field trip. This time they're going to the dump. <laughs> Uh, it's recycling yeah, and all that. Sure. Yeah. Twelve guys surrounded my car. <laughs> I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, your weekly guide to the world of vocal music. This evening I'm joined by voice therapists Sarah Schneider and Joanna Kasdan. We're looking at how the art of singing relates to the art of speaking. Those two clips we just heard, the first one was Tom Waits singing You're Innocent When You Dream and then chatting to talk show host David Letterman in a TV interview. Show how someone's speaking and singing voice can be pretty closely related in terms of quality. But in the case of Tom Waits, the raspiness is regarded as an asset by many people. So Sarah and Joanna, would you worry about Tom Waits's voice as much as Beyonce's, for example, if you're worried about hers at all? It doesn't seem like you so much are. I don't know. And how broad is the range of what is considered normal? So I think in in the case of Beyonce, maybe and Tom Waits is really it's sort of knowing what their vocal folds look like and sort of where their sort of baseline of feeling good with their voices and then monitoring them. So this is a good reason why you want to have sort of a team of people sort of that you can check in with, because if you have any changes, you can check in. But in his case, I mean, as long as there's nothing funky in the larynx, that's, that's you know, raising red flags as far as 
something serious going on. I mean, he's making a lot of money from his voice and he's happy. He seems to be happy with it. Apparently he's not getting recognized. No, not enough. When, <laughs> except when he goes to the dump. Uh, Joanna, do you want to add anything? Well, Tom Waits has what I would call a relaxed roughness, mm-hmm. which is quite different than a, than a tense or forced or harsh sound. It's, it sounds like it's very, it's very easy for him to sing, mm-hmm. it's very easy for him to speak. I'm not sure whether some of the roughness may be on purpose for effect or whether it's built in, um, but it certainly sounds like it feels very comfortable, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And from what I hear from other people, they like his sound because it seems somewhat authentic. You know, it's sort of like when the genes are worn in a little bit, they, they, they seem better and more real to people than when they're, you know, perfect out of the box. So, you know, that, that has its own appeal. Do you find his speaking voice surprising? It's actually a little cleaner than I expected. I, th- I thought so, too, actually which means he might be doing some of the roughness for effect when he sings. Mm-hmm. Huh. Not, 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 not necessarily consciously, but... Where, like, in the opposite with Beyonce, you hear more... I mean, there, there might be a little noise in her singing, but it sounds smoother than mm-hmm. her speaking voice. Mm-hmm. And I think in those cases, I actually would be a little bit more concerned yeah. uh, because it means prob- likely in her singing, she's pushing through to get that clear sound. Mm-hmm. And in her speaking voice, she's just kind of speaking. Right. You're tuned into Voice Box with Chloe Veltman. Feelings Nothing more than feelings Trying to forget My feelings of love This is Voice Box and I'm your host, Chloe Veltman. I'm chatting with Sarah Schneider and Joanna Kasdan, voice speech pathologists and members of the American Speech Language Hearing Association, or USHA for short, about the intimate relationship between singing and speaking. Sarah's in the studio with me and Joanna is joining us on the phone from L.A. Now, the first word that comes to mind when I hear the track we just played, Vic Damoni's rendition of the love song Feelings, is emotion. Heart on the sleeves, emotion. And emotion is one of the main elements that song in particular is good at conveying versus speech in some respects. So Joanna and Sarah, we've talked about the ways in which speech and singing relate to each other from a muscular perspective. But what are your thoughts about the spiritual and psychological differences between using your voice to sing a song versus deliver a speech? I think that a trained speaker can deliver just as much emotion. It might be shown differently through nuance rather than power and, and dragging out. Again, the, the, the rhythm is different. The context mm-hmm. is different. But um, certainly an Ian McKellen or Judy Dench can do just as much um, to express emotion as any singer. I, I totally agree. I think that singers and speakers, they can draw the same emotion out of themselves as a performer and um, engage the listener equally, just in different ways. 
what would be the case, therefore, then, of setting any kind of written text to song if it's just as powerful spoken as it is sung? Well, actually, as a songwriter, I would say that if something is too dense and expressive just as words, it's quite difficult to set it to music because there's nothing that needs to be added. And the song lyrics are often a little bit dry when you read them on the page because they're leaving room mm-hmm. for something else to be expressed through the music. You know, that's why I've heard a lot of people say that there's really no point in setting Shakespeare's verse to music because it already is so very musical in and of itself that Uh somehow the effect is deadened by the addition of music. Um, But I thought that it would be interesting, given that a lot of people say this, to play two versions of a sonnet by Shakespeare, Sonnet 29. The first is the text spoken by one of the finest actors in the history of the English language, John Gilgood. The second is a setting of the sonnet written and performed by the singer-songwriter Rufus Wainwright. Both versions are quite beautiful in their own ways but I wonder which version has a stronger appeal. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy contented least. Yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, haply I think on thee. And then my state, like to the lark at break of day arising, from sullen earth sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remember. In men's eyes, I'll alone beweep my outcast and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my Here on Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman, we just heard two versions of Shakespeare's Sonnet 29. The first was spoken by the actor John Gilgood. The second is a setting of the sonnet written and performed by the singer-songwriter Rufus Wainwright. The Gilgood, you can't deny that he works every syllable, mm-hmm. whereas Rufus Wainwright is going for a much more generic emotion that you know, the melody and the tone quality stays pretty much the same for four lines of one of the quatrains. And mm-hmm. then he takes it up to a different pitch and stays at that emotion for a while, whereas Gilgood is playing every single thing and almost too much for our <laughs> Too much. <laughs> there's just a difference in nuance and variety in speech. Mm-hmm. And yet there's a greater emotional punch with the music. One thing I appreciated about Rufus Wainwright's setting of that sonnet is that um, he creates a music that's very simple. And in terms of thinking about how eloquent the text is on its own, you, if you are going to set it to music, I suppose you do want to kind of get out of the way and not create a music that's where there's too much going on, too many complex chord progressions and so on. I think that he does that very well by keeping things so sort of simple and quite sweet, really. Mm-hmm. 
but it does kind of flatten yeah. the, the meaning from the beginning of a line to the end. You, mm-hmm. you sort of get the gist of it, but not the details of the words. True. So how would you work with patients to get the very best from them so that they can speak like John Gilgood or perhaps sing like Rufus Wainwright? <sighs> So in working in vocal rehab, one of my goals is to get them in good vocal health so that their coach can really coach them on the nuances or their teacher mm-hmm. can coach them on the nuances of really the expression and the the emoting. I want to make sure that they are capable with their vocal mechanism of achieving consistent sound to be able to do those things. Jana, anything you want to add? I would just add that my goal is not for anyone to sound like John Gielgud or Rufus <laughs> Rainwhite, to sound like their, their own best self. Yes. Absolutely. And to find whatever's missing in their breath technique or their lifestyle or their use of the vocal cords or the resonance or base of tongue or whatever, mm-hmm. to, as, as Sarah said, get, get the maximum range of abilities from that bit of mechanics and gristle. Um, in order for them to then choose what they're going to do with it. Terrific. Well, thank you both for your sage words. Our time is just about up for this week. So thank you so much, Sarah Schneider and Joanna Kasdan, for sharing your thoughts with me tonight. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you both. And please come back again soon. Thanks. It's been fun as always. Thanks, Chloe. This episode of Voicebox was generously underwritten by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association, making effective communication a human right accessible and achievable for all. Visit www.asha.org and enter Voice Disorders into the homepage search engine for more information. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Voicebox's series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. Voicebox needs your support. To find out how you can donate to Voicebox to keep us on the air, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Donating is safe, easy and tax deductible through our online PayPal link. Check out our free weekly podcasts on iTunes and via voicebox media.org and visit our homepage to mull over and respond to the question of the week. Also, we love to know what you think of us, so please friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and write to us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org. You can call us also with your comments and questions. Our number is 415-841-4121, extension 3515. That's 415-841-4121, extension 3515. I'll play us out with a song all about poor speech, sung by a blowhard character who isn't exactly a dead ringer for Caruso himself. Here's Henry Higgins with Why Can't the English from the musical My Fair Lady. The voice behind the character is Rex Harrison. Have a songful week. Look at her, a prisoner of the gutter, condemned by every syllable she uttered. By right, she should be taken out and hung for the cold-blooded murder of the English tongue. Heavens, what a noise. This is what the British population calls an elementary education. Oh, come, sir, I think you picked a poor example. Did I? Hear them down in Soho Square, dropping H's everywhere, speaking English any way they like. You, sir, did you go to school? What do you type me for? Who? No one taught him take instead of type. <laughs> <laughs>